I'm James Gould, and this is The Recess Course. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about penetrating neck trauma. There's not much more distracting. These can be chaotic situations. They can be extraordinarily stressful for providers. And, you know, typically we harp on the idea that in trauma and resuscitation in general, we should resequence the priority of events away from the ABCs and more to managing the life threats, to resuscitating before managing someone's airway. And penetrating neck injuries might be one of those only scenarios where you might have to intervene on the airway early. Today on the show, we have with us Dr. Sean Hurley. Sean is an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine. He's a trauma team leader and trauma consultant, and we're lucky to have him here. Thanks for being here, Sean. Yeah, thanks, James. Look, let's start here. What's the most important thing to remember when managing patients with penetrating neck injuries? Yeah, so there's lots of priorities here, but mainly with penetrating neck trauma, as you mentioned, this is probably one of the few examples of traumatic injuries where uh, or mechanisms that were truly worried about airway as the first priority. So when you think about penetrating neck trauma, we're worried about airway injuries, we're worried about vascular injuries, and we're worried about esophageal injuries. I think it's also important to remember that this is a, a trauma patient, and we got to stick to the principles as well. So with all penetrating trauma, I'm a huge proponent of early exposure to make sure that there's no additional injuries that we're missing. Because remember, we do have this big you know, penetrating wounds to the neck, often they're, they're pretty dramatic. And of course, the team's going to be focusing on that, on that injury. But we got to make sure that we're, we do a quick survey to make sure that we're aware of any additional injuries. So usually my sequence of events is as the patient rolls in with EHS, we try to cut off all of their, their clothes on their upper body. We get them to raise their hands up in the air, check their back, check their scalp, and check their armpits. And then as we move them over to the bed, we cut off their clothes on their lower extremities and make sure that we're not missing any injuries and make sure that we expose the perineum as well. This can all happen within kind of 10, 15 seconds. It's very quickly, but I think a very, very important step. And of course, we're not as we're not worrying about you know log roll precautions for thoracic or lumbar spine injuries and not really worried about cervical spine injuries as well for penetrating trauma. So this this happens very quickly um, and make sure that we expose so that we're not missing any additional injuries. Yeah. Yeah, that's so key. I mean, you know, stab wounds can be pretty small, right? And they can hide from us. So looking at all the the fat folds, looking at the auxilla, looking in the groin, checking the back. It's so, so key in these in these cases. Look, Sean, let's start with a case just so that we can sort of frame the patient that we're talking about. I want you to imagine you're working in our department. There's a 35-year-old male that's been stabbed downtown to the neck. He's approximately 10 minutes away. EHS, EMS service, reports a significant amount of blood loss on scene. Patient is ambulatory but very intoxicated, endorsing alcohol use and some other recreational drugs. His vital signs are a heart rate of 140, blood pressure is 100 on 60, respiratory rate of 22 with an O2 sat at 92%. He was initially cooperative and paramedics were able to place an IV in his left AC, but since then he's become more agitated en route and he arrives in that state. You know, how do you prepare for this kind of case? How do you ready your team? You know, what do you need to get ready in terms of equipment in the room, that sort of thing? 
Yeah, so clearly this is a patient that we're going to be extremely, um, extremely concerned about given obviously the mechanism, the penetrating neck trauma, and then the unstable vitals. In addition, as, as many of these trauma patients with penetrating injuries are, the, this patient also appears to be intoxicated and agitated. So that's another element of complexity. So this is a patient that, you know, we're going to have to prepare adequately if we have time to do so. The first thing I'm going to do is try to prepare myself, take a few deep breaths and, and uh, you know, do some positive self-talk. I think having the, whoever's leading this resuscitation be calm is, is extremely important. In terms of priorities that I'm going to set for my team, one of the main things, again, which I mentioned earlier, was the early exposure. So that's going to be key. I'll communicate that with the team. And that's going to happen on transfer from the AHS stretcher onto our own stretcher. I'm going to drop a full dose of dissociative ketamine, so over one milligram per kilogram, since this patient sounds like they're agitated and intoxicated. So facilitating some cooperation chemically is going to be important, I think, in this case. I'm going to at least have that ready to go. Next, again, as we mentioned earlier, worried about airway injuries. Number one, I'm going to have create a, a team with hopefully some very experienced providers to manage the airway. I'm going to, I'm going to um, ask them to come up with a plan and then we're going to bring in all our equipment necessarily, uh, necessary in this case, which is definitely going to include a flexible fiber optic bronchoscopy or ambuscope and a blood loss on scene. So I'm going to have some, at least a couple units of O blood ready to go and communicate that with my nursing team. Um, as the patient arrives, if they're unstable at all, I'm going to have a low uh, threshold to activate acid transfusion protocol if needed. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of working parts to all of this, isn't there, before the patient gets there. As emergency providers, we're always thinking in terms of, of the ABCs, and we sort of prefaced all of this with saying that you might need to resequence things in terms of, of, of trauma, but this might be the one scenario where you, in fact, do need to intervene on the airway. When someone comes in with a penetrating neck injury, you know, you've done your exposure. Let's say this patient rolls in, they have an isolated neck injury. What's your approach to assessing that patient's airway, deciding whether or not they need immediate airway management? And if you do decide they need it, how do you proceed with securing that patient's airway? Yeah, it's a great question, James. I kind of been these patients with penetrating neck trauma and potential airway involvement in three categories. The first category is going to be the really unstable patient. They've got hard signs of airway trauma, so bubbling from the wound, you know, massive subcutaneous emphysema, and airway or respiratory distress. So that's kind of my critically unwell patient. We know that we need to intervene on and, and manage this airway immediately, and we don't have time. The second category is going to be probably where the majority fall, where we have a bit more time. They may have some soft signs of airway, airway trauma, or at least there's concern based on where the wound is, but they're in no respiratory distress. Their O2 sats are okay, and we think we've got a bit of time to manage this a bit more slowly. And we'll go into more depth on how... how I like to approach these patients. And then thirdly is category where I'm, I'm less worried. We've got time. I don't think there's any airway involvement based on kind of where their, their wound is and the lack of any soft or hard signs of airway trauma. And so most of these can, can wait and we've got time. So we're not going to talk a whole lot about those patients. The main thing with managing the airway in penetrating neck trauma is that I'm worried about two things. So I'm worried about turning a partial transection of the airway into a complete transection. And that this is a risk if we're blindly intubating. 
if we're not actually visualizing the airway prior to placing our endotracheal tube. Obviously, this is a, a big deal and it's going to have very poor outcomes, no question. Secondly, I'm worried about blindly intubating a false passage. And this is a problem, obviously, we put an endotracheal tube into a false passage and then we place the patient on positive pressure ventilation. You're going to insufflate the soft, the subcutaneous tissue, soft tissue area, lead to more subcutaneous emphysema. And we really could distort the anatomy and make any, any further interventions very difficult. So the way that we avoid those two things is by intubating with under visualization. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. And, and I guess the other important thing just to reiterate is the idea, not just false passage, not just completing a transaction, but also making sure that we have our cuff up below the level of injury so that we don't insufflate the soft tissues and create more subcutaneous emphysema. Absolutely. And that's, that's important right from the beginning when we're going to, if we do need to provide some valve mass ventilation, we're going to be extra careful in, in avoiding any aggressive positive pressure ventilation as we could kind of distort the anatomy and insufflate the soft tissue. So in the first category of patient, the patient in respiratory distress, we don't have time to do an awake intubation to, to prepare the patient, topicalize with lidocaine. We just have to basically go ahead and do some version of a rapid sequence, sequence intubation. Paralytics are a bit controversial. The whole idea is that if we give paralytics, we could potentially lose that underlying muscle tone and potentially lose the airway and make it more of an obstructive case. So we think about kind of an expanding neck hematoma, you could have the potential to lose the airway. I think the big thing is that recognizing that in this situation, you, you know, you don't really have an ideal approach because the patient is unstable, but just preparing that that's a possibility. So when I give my induction agents and paralytics, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to debate the patient, but I'm also ready to have a low threshold to cut the neck and do a, a bougie cricothyrotomy or front of neck access. So I'm going to have, I'm going to be prepared to do that. The only thing that I would add to that is I totally agree with everything that you said. If you need to do this sort of immediately, it's so rare that, that airways have to happen now, but this might be, that might be one of these situations as you describe it. If I am moving forward with, with an RSI in that situation or, or ketamine-only intubation, whichever you've decided, and we won't get into the details on that, I think that I'm also still using the fiber optic. Would you agree? Like you're getting a view with Macintosh laryngoscopy or hyperangulated, some form of, of video laryngoscopy from above, but you're, you're transversing through the cords using fiber optic flexible scope. Uh, so that you can still visualize the airway from above. Would you agree with that? As opposed to, you know, you do your RSI, video laryngoscopy, passing the tube blindly versus a sort of double video setup where you would visualize the airway from above with video laryngoscopy and use a video flexible scope to pass through the airway. So video laryngoscopy is going to create a sort of pathway for you to get to the airway in this either paralyzed or induced patient. And then the, so that you could easily, you know, put your flexible scope down and, and into the airway. So long as you have the skills to operate the, the flexible scope in, in those, in those conditions, would you agree? Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. And I, I kind of think about it, or at least I described with the resonances you're using kind of as like the ultimate bougie. So it's controllable, and also you've got a camera at the end, so you can quickly go in and inspect the airway that you are properly seated in the airway. 
So let's talk about the second group then, the group that you have a bit of, a bit of time with. You think there's an airway injury, you have some signs that there's an airway injury, and, and you've decided that airway needs to be managed, but you have some time to do so. Describe what you do there. Yeah, absolutely. So the second group, you may see some soft signs or even hard signs of, of airway injury, but you've got more time. They're in no respiratory distress. You can then basically break this second group into into two groups. If they're going to be the cooperative patient, where you're basically doing a wake airway, uh, properly topicalize the patient, ideally probably having them seated up, and you're in front of the patient, and uh, you're going to intubate them with your A-scope, place the tube under direct visualization. The second kind of subgroup of this is going to be the less cooperative patient, which just sounds like describes our case here, where they're intoxicated, agitated, maybe I've had to give them a full dissociative ketamine. So they're not going to be cooperative to do a full, fully kind of awake approach. So I'm actually going to put in a, a supine position, much like I would intubate any patient for a rapid sequence intubation. Building on what we talked about before, I'm going to first use a, a hyperangulated blade with a video device. I'm going to try to get a good view. And then I'm going to actually hand my, my hyperangulated blade to an assistant. And basically, I'm just asking to keep the exact view that, um, that I've obtained. Next, then I'm going to grab the, the A-scope, and I'm going to have a tube already loaded, and then I'm going to go in and pass the scope through the cords. And then I'm going to slowly, because I've got a bit more time here, patients breathing on their own, so I've top this approach as well, uh, but I've got a bit more time, they're breathing on their own. I'm going to slowly inspect the trachea as I go down from the cords all the way down to the carina. Ideally, I can actually record this as well. Most devices you're able to record. I think this is this is important because I think downstream I can actually show this to my colleagues, whether it's thoracic surgery or ENT, whoever whoever does a bronch in your institution, and actually show them. So once I'm happy that I'm properly in the trachea, then I can slide the tube gently through. And even if there is a big tracheal injury, as long as I know that I'm I'm properly seated in the trache- trachea, I can pass the tube gently um, until it's seated properly. And then, and then obviously you can then inflate the cuff, give them some ketamine, possibly paralyze them. But the big thing is that I'm making sure that I'm directly visualizing so that I, again, back to the basics, I'm avoiding kind of turning a partial transection to complete transection or blindly intubating a false passage. The other thing throughout this process, I'm also going to make sure that I'm, I'm set up in case I know that this is an anatomically challenging airway and there's, there's still a chance of, of, of losing the airway and failing on this approach. So I'm going to be set up to do a rescue front and back to access with a bougie precathorotomy and properly having marking the neck and being set up with that with a scalpel bougie and a 6.0 tube. Yeah, it seems like the biggest difference between patient number one and patient number two is obviously, you know, the time period that you have to prepare. Patient number one, they've, you know, are impending airway loss. And so you're just cracking on with it. In, in patient number two, you have a bit of time if you need to use, and I love the term you use, the, the chemical cooperation. If you need to give them ketamine in order to tolerate all of the stuff that we're doing, it's an important point that, you know, if you have time, you still topicalize these patients, right? So they may be ketamine dissociated, but they can, you know, you can still sit them up. You can still pull the pull their tongue out. You can still time your atomization of, of lidocaine with, with their breathing. And, you know, George talks about the, the ketamine facilitated intubation as opposed to a ketamine only. And really what that is, is you're using ketamine 
to allow you to topicalize the patient. So your primary modality is still, you know, a topicalized airway and, and using your A-scope, but your ketamine, the only thing that it is doing is allowing you to topicalize them. Absolutely. Totally agree. So look, I want to move on to the importance of, of, the, of the extent of the injury. So we always talk about this platysma muscle violation in, in neck trauma. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, Absolutely. So we've dealt with our airway airway injuries for the most part, or at least we've secured an endotracheal tube and somebody else is going to deal with the airway injuries and the OR. Uh, now we're going to talk about kind of moving through to vascular injuries. The platysma muscle is important. It's the kind of superficial muscle that is important in kind of delineating. Is this superficial neck trauma or is there potentially deeper structures involved? So that platysma muscle is that one where we kind of center our neck muscles and kind of tighten our neck and we can see that web-like structure around. If that's violated, we have to be worried that deeper structures are involved. So that's really the key. So if, we th- if we're very confident that it has, there's been no violation of that platysma muscle, usually we can kind of stop there. This patient needs just some suturing of their skin and, and oftentimes we'll be able to go home. However, if we're at all worried that there's platysma muscle violation, then we have to go looking for a deeper structure involvement. So that's yeah. why that platysma muscle is really the, the kind of key first step. And if I'm all, at all worried, then I have to go looking for other injuries. Yeah. You, you mentioned hard and soft signs a lot, but we haven't really defined those for the listeners yet. Do you mind sort of reviewing what you mean by hard and soft signs in penetrating neck trauma? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I know now that, or I think that the platysma muscle has been violated. Next, next kind of step in the algorithm is saying, well, are there hard signs of vascular airway injury or are there soft signs? And we'll talk about how that fits into the algorithm. The way I think about it is hard signs, they're going to be very obvious. So when we talk about hard signs of airway injury, we talk about respiratory distress or airway compromise, massive subcutaneous emphysema or air bubbling through the wound. Okay, those are going to be obvious, right? They're not going to be subtle generally. They're going to be very obvious. When we think about hard signs of vascular injury, expanding or pulsatile hematoma, active brisk pulsatile bleeding, hemorrhagic shock, massive hematemesis, or obvious neurologic deficit. Okay, so like a big proximal stroke. Those again are not going to be subtle. Those are going to be very obvious. Okay, so uh. hard signs, airway, or vascular involvement, those are easy. We need to find a way to secure definitive airway, which we've already talked about, and those need to go straight to the OR. So that's why mm. the hard signs are important. And again, I wouldn't worry too much about kind of regurgitating the list. These are going to be very obvious. Hard signs are hard to miss. Fair enough to say. Exactly. Exactly. I like that. Soft signs, again, are going to be a little bit more subtle just in terms of kind of listing these, hemoptysis, oropharyngeal blood, dyspnea, dysphagia, dysphonia, non-expanding hematoma, subcutaneous or metastinal air, vascular brewery or thrill, and crepitus. Those are maybe a little bit more subtle, but as long as there's no hard signs, you've probably got time. And these soft signs don't need to go direct to the OR, but they do need some advanced imaging. So really, the way I think about it is hard signs, they're going to be easy, hard to miss. And those are going to go straight to the OR. 
everything else, if there's lymphatismal violation, needs some more definitive imaging. Okay. The old zones of injury to the neck, zone one, zone two, zone three. Can, can you describe what these are? Do you categorize penetrating neck injuries based on the zone? Does it change how you manage the patients or is, or is there a better way of thinking about this? And I think that you've sort of already alluded to the idea that the hard and soft signs sound like dictate how you manage patients. What do you think about the zones of injury to the neck? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the zones are less important in this day and age because our CT technology has improved and we're doing CTAs on almost every one of these patients. So let's talk about the zones. One is from your sternal notch up to your, your uh, cricoid cartilage. Zone two is from cricoid cartilage to angle of mandible. And then zone three is above the angle of your mandible. Historically, why this was important is because again, whether there was hard signs in any of these zones, they were going straight to the OR. But if there were soft signs only, it didn't matter which zone the injury was in and where they would go. So if they were in, if the injury was in zone two, this is a more easily accessible area. So oftentimes if there were soft signs only, these would still go directly to the OR and they would get exploration by our ENT colleagues. And so they would both inspect that area for a diagnostic perspective and see which injuries, what structures were involved or injured. And they would also intervene if there was anything they needed to do in the OR if there was any structures damaged, mm. okay? Zone one and zone three are not as accessible. So these would actually go for, for angiography. So kind of much like we do for cardiac catheterization, same kind of thing, you require puncturing one of the arteries, whether it's femoral artery, radial artery, shoot some contrast, um, and then do some imaging. This is kind of the gold standard of looking for vascular injuries. However, you of course have to injure a vascular structure in order to get this, in, this imaging, right? So it comes with risk. So because because of these risks, you know, zone twos would go straight to the OR for exploration and only zone one and zone three would go for angios. Now in this day and age where CTAs are so readily accessible and almost just as good as angiography, but carry far less risk, it's shooting some contrast through uh, some of your intravenous access. You can go straight to CTA for any of these soft, soft signs. So essentially... Zones are almost irrelevant except for describing the injury pattern. If there's hard signs, they're going to the OR. If there's soft signs in any of these zones, they're going to get a CT, CTA of the head and neck. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally, totally. In terms of the vascular injury bit, you know, there is the, the workup bit, but then there's also the management of the bleeding. I know you said, you know, rapid transfusion protocol, giving the patient blood back and stuff like that. What's your approach to you know, like stopping the bleeding? Like, what do you actually do locally to, to try to reduce the amount of bleeding that these patients might have from, from a potential vascular injury? You know, obviously that's, that's one of the difficult parts of this, but usually kind of same principles apply direct compression in this area to, to hopefully stop the bleeding. I mean, you're obviously worried about downstream effects of directly compressing one of your, your major pro proximal vascular structures, but at the end of the day, you're still worried about either ongoing blood loss which is life-threatening in and of itself, or you're worried about big kind of expanding hematomas that could compromise the airway. So you're still kind of trying to compress that as best you can to stop the bleeding or, or, or slow the progression of that expanding hematoma. Presumably, you know, 
given that it's the neck and there's a lot of important stuff that goes up to the brain there, you're, you're doing your best to compress just what's bleeding. Like I could imagine a scenario where there's a lot of bleeding. Someone takes a big abdominal pad, places it on the neck and then pushes really hard and can, occludes everything that's there. I, I assume that probably instead what we want is, is, is exposure as best we can and compression to the smallest area possible to control the bleeding. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Of course. And, and what about this this idea of a Foley catheter? I've never done this. I don't know if you have or not, but it's described. The idea that you put the Foley catheter into the neck hole and you expand the Foley to try to occlude or, or create sort of a tamponade effect to inside the inside the wound. Have you ever done this? Would, would you do it? I've, de- I've certainly never had to do that. I guess, I guess it makes sense, but you know, there's a couple things. I'd want to for sure make sure that I've already got their tracheal tube secured in the airway because if I'm going to expand any additional structure in that area, it may actually occlude or compress the airway. So that's kind of the first thing. I think the other thing is I'm going to hopefully be able to control the bleeding just with some direct pressure. And yeah. I'll probably just hold, hold that pressure or have somebody hold the pressure until my ENT colleagues arrive. But I guess the Foley catheter is, is a potential option, but probably not one that I'm going to jump to right away. And so to summarize the workup for vascular injury, essentially hard signs, going with our friends to the operating room, soft signs, getting a CTA. Yeah, that, that's essentially it. And of course, even before that, you just want to yes, no, is platysma violated. And then you move on to your hard and soft signs. Right. And yeah, exactly. OR or they're getting a CT, CTA of the, the head and neck. There are some algorithms that'll say, you know, e- even if there's kind of some small soft signs that uh, you'd consider observation without imaging, I-, I would advocate against that strategy. I think if you're in a place that doesn't see a ton of penetra- penetrating trauma like ours, these these penetrating neck traumas are so rare, unfortunately. But uh, I think that I would, and we have CT imaging so readily accessible that I would have a very low threshold to get a, a CTA of the head and neck to make sure that there's no additional injuries. And really, when you think about it, our ENT colleagues probably don't see a, a ton of this either in our, our place. Maybe that's appropriate in a place that is higher volume penetrating trauma, but certainly I'd have a low threshold to get some definitive imaging. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. So we talked about the airway management. We talked about vascular injury and bleeding. And then the third thing that you started this podcast with was digestive tract type injuries as well. Can, can you speak a bit to the workup for potential GI injuries in these cases? Yeah, absolutely. Usually not as important as the airway and vascular injuries in terms of resuscitating in the trauma bay, but still very important over the course of the next kind of hours to first couple of days that they'll be admitted because they're still very important to... Very important to to diagnose and make sure that we're managing is appropriate. So we're talking about esophageal injuries. They can carry a high amounts of morbidity if they're missed. So essentially, you know, the esophagus lies a little bit deeper to the airway and vascular structures. But if there's been any damage to any of the vascular structures or airway structures, there's hard or soft signs of, of injuries, then you really have to go and convince yourself that there hasn't been an esophageal injury. Much like other hollow viscous injuries, we sometimes will miss them in other parts of the body. Sometimes we'll miss those on CT scan. So a CT isn't enough to rule out an esophageal injury. So usually what has to happen is they'll be admitted and they need two things. They need a gastrograph and swallow, and then they also need endoscopy. So they actually need a scope to go down. With, with the combination of those two things, 
we can almost say it's a hundred percent sensitivity. So if there's no injury on those two uh, imaging and, and investigative modalities, then you can be pretty confident there is no esophageal injury. Until you can confidently rule the mode and you're concerned, we should be keeping these patients MPO. There's high likelihood of esophageal injury starts by broad spectrum antibiotics, and they should only have an NG placed under direct visualization um, under scope. So I think that's important, or again, create a false passage. Um, and these may require operative intervention, which I won't get into. Nice, nice. Awesome. Listen, Sean, we came to the end of the podcast. We've covered a lot of stuff here so far. If you could sort of summarize in 30 seconds how you would manage these patients, what would that sound like? Yeah, absolutely. So penetrating neck trauma, obviously the patient that are extremely stressful, try to make the room less chaotic and calm yourself and have a calm demeanor if, if at all possible. You remember that they're fundamentally penetrating trauma patients, so early exposure is incredibly important in these patients. When you're worried about airway injuries, you're going to try to avoid positive pressure ventilation. Ideally, you're going to have endotracheal tube placement under direct visualization with a scope. A wake approach is preferred if you have time and the patient's cooperative. But if you're going to do an RSI or, or, or you don't have as much time, either a double or a triple setup is preferred. So you're always ready to cut the neck in case you lose that airway. In terms of vascular injuries, you're looking to see if the platysma is violated. You're then looking for hard signs. If hard signs are present, which will be obvious, they're going straight to the OR. If they're not present, you're going to then get a CT, CTA of the head and neck. And then, of course, you're still worried about esophageal injuries. They're important to communicate that you're worried about them either to your admitting trauma service or to whatever service or ENT that they're going to go to before you can rule out esophageal injury. Awesome. Great summary, man. Listen, thanks so much for being on the show again, and we'll hopefully have you back sometime soon for some more trauma stuff. Awesome. Thanks so much, James. Appreciate the opportunity. Always fun talking uh, anything penetrating trauma, especially penetrating neck trauma. Okay, man. Take care. Thanks.